The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 4th. Today, Democrats finalize their plans for the 2020 debates. A knock on the door of a cold case murder suspect and the poetry of NASA's latest endeavor. As Democrats start planning for the 2020 primary debates, they're actually looking to the Republicans. Later this evening, we will hear from the top 11 contenders. The other four candidates are taking part in the first round, and they are ready to join us now. The CNN debate from September 2015 was actually the debate before the debate. The one for the candidates who didn't quite make it to the big leagues. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Rick Santorum, Bobby Jindal, and former New York Governor George Pataki. Democrats are expecting an equally large number of candidates as Republicans had in the lead up to 2016. But they want to figure out how to accommodate everyone without resorting to packed stages or awkward second-tier debates for long-shot candidates. And the Democrats are trying to figure this all out before any candidates officially start running. They want to avoid a repeat of their own fumble, which was the special treatment that they gave Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley. The debate issue in 2016 almost led to a full-blown civil war within the party. That's Michael Scheer, a national political reporter at The Post. He's been covering the Democratic National Committee's efforts to avoid these problems in the next round of primary debates. It is absolutely crazy that we're talking about 2020 presidential debates right now. Well, we're about to get going. I mean, there are probably going to be two or three candidates this month who announced their intention to run for president. There's already depending on who you count, two or three people who have announced they're running for president. And then there's a pretty big slate of, I don't know, 20 more. So the DNC right now is trying to come up with a finalized plan of how they're going to do presidential debates for the primaries. What are the problems from 2016 that they're trying to avoid? There were three big candidates running, if you remember, Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley, and Bernie Sanders. And Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders both said repeatedly and publicly that the system had basically been rigged to advantage the third candidate, Hillary Clinton. This is totally unprecedented in our party's history. This sort of rigged process has never been attempted before. And then we found out, you know, after the primary was completed because of the WikiLeaks, the theft of emails from the Clinton campaign and the release by WikiLeaks, that there was some something to that, that the Clinton campaign had been actually negotiating with the DNC the debate schedule, that Clinton's campaign had had access to those planners in a way that the other candidates did not. And it pretty much turned out that she got what she wanted out of those debates in a way the other candidates didn't. But part of that was the fact that the Democratic field was so small, right? That Hillary Clinton, you know, everyone thought that she was going to be the candidate. And so you only had three people who were serious contenders. But in 2020, it's going to be way bigger than that. that that's absolutely right. And, and I don't think there's much concern that there's going to be a repeat of last time. I think the Democratic Party right now is just going through the motions to make clear 
that there's not going to be a repeat, in part because Tom Perez, the chairman, was elected promising a more fair and transparent process than we had in, in 2015 and 16. And in part because of what you said, there is no front runner. There's no one with an inside track. But they're not just trying to avoid the 2016 Democratic primary debates, right? They're also trying to avoid the Republican debates. The Republican debates last cycle, if you remember, they had a very sprawling group of candidates, something like 20 or a little less, I think. And they divided them up for most of those debates in the early months into two stages. There was a kiddie table debate stage that would go on first and then a primetime debate starring, it turned out, Donald Trump and you know the people who are trying to come after him that everyone watched. And the effect was that if you were in that first debate, that kiddie table debate, you really were kind of officially demoted by the party. You were seen as a lesser candidate. You didn't get a chance to engage with the front runners in the race. And on top of that, the candidates in the kiddie table debate kept changing depending on polling. And so there would be these sort of embarrassing public demotions that certain candidates like Chris Christie would get to go down to the debate that no one watched or really cared about. And Perez has said internally, and a number of outside advisors who've talked with the team putting this plan together, that he doesn't want to repeat that this time. So what is he going to do? We don't know exactly what the system will be. They haven't said that. What we know is that there's going to be an initial plan announced later this month, and that that principle that there will not be a top tier and a lower tier will be adhered to. What is the criteria that they've used in the past for determining who gets into which tier of debate? And is there any rethinking of that now? There is. And the issue here is that you'll have a very large number of credible candidates, but you're also going to have a large number of candidates who wear boots on their head or who have, you know, single issues that are, are sort of wingnut candidates out for publicity. And so the, the party has to figure out who to determine is credible in a somewhat objective way. In 2016, they used national polling, and they said you had to at least get 1% in three national polls within six weeks of the debate. There has been discussion in the, the DNC this time about expanding that, because if you have 20-plus credible candidates, they're probably all not going to get 1% in a national poll or in three national polls to get on the debate stage. And so we don't know what the actual criteria would be, but the discussions have included looking at the number of social media followers they have, where they've opened offices, how much money they've fundraised, what staff they've hired. And I think what we'll end up with is some sort of a rubric that combines a lot of different things that will allow candidates to qualify in different ways. The details are really where the suspense is right now. What, what is not very suspenseful is the goal of the party. And, and for the most part, the campaigns from 2016, who the party has consulted with quite a bit, they've talked to advisors for Martin O'Malley's campaign and advisors for Bernie Sanders' campaign, are pretty pleased with the direction this is going because it, you know, they feel included this time. They feel like there is at least a goal of having everything be on the up and up. And have they been talking to some of the 2020 campaigns or people who look like they might, you know, the, the staffers for people who look like they might be running? Right. So the thing that got them in trouble in 2015 was they were talking to one of the 2016 campaigns, but not the other two. So this time they have said very clearly that they are not consulting with the potential 2020 candidates. Now, there's a big exception to that, and, and that's that there are a number of advisors who worked in the 2016 campaign who are advising either other candidates or the same candidate. Bernie Sanders has said he's very much considering another presidential run, and his advisors have talked to the DNC. But they're not reaching out to the Elizabeth Warren's campaign or Kamala Harris's campaign. Because they or, don't want to look like they're favoring anybody. That's right. 
do debates really matter anymore? I feel like more and more, you know, people make decisions based on really snazzy campaign videos that people put up and whatever the, like, latest Twitter comeback is. But are people really making decisions based on debates anymore? I I think the answer is yes. And it depends on the candidate. If you're a lesser-known candidate with no name ID who doesn't have a national presence, debates are incredibly important because it's really the only way you can put yourself in front of the country. We saw all through the 16 cycle uh, debate ratings that were far above what was happening in 2008. And I think you know, the cable news networks are already sort of scrambling right now to uh, lock down not just debates, but also other things like town halls, because they know there's this enormous appetite in the Democratic Party and among Democratic voters to figure out who their candidate is. And nobody knows the answer to that. It's a wide open field right now. So the expectation is that you're going to get 20 million or more people tuning into these things. And anytime you get that kind of ratings on, on a television show, it's an enormous bit of advertising, not just for the candidates who perform well, but for the Democratic Party. Do we have an idea yet of when the first debate is going to be? The party has not said when the first debate is going to be. My expectation is, and this is just reading the tea leaves, that we're probably going to land somewhere in the middle there, which probably means the first debate happens in the summer of next year. Wow. That is not that far away. Not far away at all. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yesterday on Post Reports, national political correspondent Mary Jordan told us about a phone call she got out of the blue in the fall of 2015. And the phone rang, and then I heard this woman say, have you heard anything more about the Margaret Yateman murder? The call was about a Defense Department employee who was murdered in the summer of 1986. Mary had reported then that the prime suspect was her married boyfriend, an ATF bomb expert named Arthur L. Kuhn. Margaret Yateman's family told her that three decades later, there had still been no resolution of the case. I mean, there's thousands of families that don't have any kind of closure to crimes. But I just thought in this case, I had this connection and I was going to find out something for them. One of the things that intrigued Mary was the fact that Margaret Yateman's family was claiming that the prime suspect had connections to the mob. And they wondered... Did that have anything to do with the fact that the case remained unsolved? I mean, why was the mention of the mob in her case? Back in the 80s, a young New York prosecutor named Rudy Giuliani made it his mission to bring down the major mob families. Why was there a picture of Rudy Giuliani in her case? One of those families was the Bonanno family, led by Rusty Rastelli. Turned out that Kuhn's wife was Rastelli's niece. So what's the theory about that connection? Well, at the time, the Justice Department had this all-out effort to get the mob. And they had proved really, really hard to jail. And there was witnesses were too scared to talk. There was enormous amount of corruption in the police departments. So they were relying heavily on wiretaps and informants. And so everyone I talked to was saying, well, whoever was involved in this case may have some information that they could trade and become an informant and help put away the biggest crime bosses in American history. Mary was re-reporting the case, and she was in touch with a cold case detective from the Baltimore Police Department named Ron Sorello. He also began looking into the case. We are in the process of retesting evidence that was collected in 1986. 
DNA collection of evidence was just very new at that time. The tests weren't as stringent back then. The standards were different from then to now. Now, DNA is our biggest kind of evidence that we look for. Including new forensic tests on the most crucial evidence. We're going to retest the fingernail clippings as long as there is enough material to be tested. And we're also re-looking at the, the glasses, eyeglasses that were found underneath her body. I'd love to call you and tell you we've made it, you know, have enough uh, evidence to get an arrest warrant. That'd be my ideal world. Sorello also looked at the evidence in the file from 1986, which explained why Kuhn was considered a suspect at the time. There were numerous pieces that put him there. Mrs. Yateman was killed with a 22 caliber handgun, and the bullet was so fragmented, so bad, that Nervy determined whether it came from one weapon or another. At that time, he owned a 22 caliber handgun. Kuhn wore um, reading glasses, and they were the type of glasses that were found under her body in the trunk of her car. The victim wore prescription bifocals, so there was no reason why those glasses found would have been the victims. They were definitely from somebody else. When Miss Yateman went missing, she went missing June 25th, 1986. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Kuhn showed up at work wearing a soft cast on his arm. Witness testimony and interviews stated that he gave three different people, he gave three different answers of what happened to his arm. Do, are there any interviews with Arthur Kuhn? Notes from interviews in the Yes. Yes, they, 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 oh, they spoke to him back then. And? He just seemed... Um, he seemed like he had an answer for every question. He chose his answers pretty carefully. Mary managed to track down the original investigator on the case, Gerald Goldstein. He told her he couldn't believe how much evidence he had, and he did not know why Kuhn was never arrested. During the course of her reporting, Mary also filed freedom of information requests with both the ATF and the FBI, and they led nowhere. Mary had even tried talking directly to Kuhn. She went to his house, where he still lives with his wife, Angie, of 60-plus years, and Mary knocked on their door. And when Kuhn came out and started talking, Angie appeared at the door and told him to go back in. She said she didn't know why the police were ever focused on her husband. He was decorated. He gave his life for public service. And she kind of insinuated that he had been punished enough. He had lost his job that he loved as a federal agent. After this woman was murdered? Yes. You know, he was in headquarters, three blocks from the White House, lost that, became a carpenter. And, you know, please, please just leave us alone. As for the mob connection, Angie Kuhn was dismissive. She was like, trust me, forget about it. But there were still the forensic tests, and maybe they would reveal something. They said that that sample of blood that they had taken from her in 1986 was so denigrated. Basically, every time that a lab had tested it, there was a little bit less of it. And so it wasn't enough to make any kind of conclusive match. Mary thought that the only avenue left was to try one more time to talk to Kuhn face-to-face. He's 84, and just to ask him, what does he know? He's a former law enforcement officer. He was named as a chief suspect, and I thought, well, I'd love to ask him, what does he think? And so I did. So you went and you knocked on the door? Knocked on the door, and a frail man came. He had a cardigan on. He looked very, very gray and didn't appear to be in great health, but he was very sharp. It was interesting. He 
he walked out, he closed the door behind him, and we talked for a while, and I said, you know, I wrote this story about this 30 years ago, and you were prime suspect, and how did that change your life? And he said it destroyed half his life, and I did ask him, I said, did you do it? And he said, don't be ridiculous. And I said, well, you know, there were a lot of evidence against you. And I mentioned the scratches on his arms, and he said, oh, it's, you know, I just went to the hospital. That was nothing. I said, your glasses were found on her body. And he said, those are just dime store glasses. She used those readers, too. He had an answer for everything. And he said that he had cooperated with the police, and he said, you know, I was a law enforcement guy, and they always look at the boyfriend or the husband, you know. I understand why they're doing this, but it's not me. And I said, well, you know, your wife was married to the mob. Could it have been someone there? She was pretty upset that you were having an affair. And he just shook his head and he said, oh, that's a good story, you know, to dismiss it like it was crazy. Was it frustrating in some ways to see all the ways in which this case just kind of barely fell short? I think it was enlightening to see how forensics have changed, how crime solving has changed. For one thing, there's videotape in every garage in America pretty much now. (laughs) They have a video of the person who drove in and certainly the DNA testing. I think I also learned how overwhelmed police departments are. Pretty much every night, a body is found just in Baltimore. And they can't keep up. I think many people wonder, you know, is all is this just sloppy police work? Are they just overworked? Or was there something bigger afoot? Is that why the FBI has really not helped me on this case at all? It strikes me that at the time that you got this phone call from Muffy Yateman's friend, that you were a political reporter, you had been a foreign correspondent, you hadn't been a crime reporter for years and years. But why did you decide to kind of make this a big focus 30 years later? It was just irresistible. And I also did think that, wow, the chances that I'm still at the paper all these years later (laughs) and sitting at my desk when the phone rings, it's kind of meant to be. I had hoped that the person who killed Margaret Yateman might confess or be implicated by new evidence. So I guess after I talked to the family and the friends, and they were so grateful to have some more answers and to have a story that told about Muffy Yateman, it really had bothered them that somehow she'd be forgotten. And just by the fact that we were talking about her and writing about her, they had some peace that they had never had. Yateman's family also hopes that the new spotlight on the murder and maybe even a new witness could potentially lead to a break in the case. And now, one more thing from post-science reporter Sarah Kaplan about an asteroid and a spaceship. We have arrived. For the past two years, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has sailed across the solar system, guided by the light of the stars. Like ancient mariners and the Apollo astronauts, it needed the constancy of the constellations, to navigate in the dark. 
OSIRIS-REx is about as big as an SUV, and it's been hurtling through space looking for an asteroid the size of the Empire State Building. Believe it or not, that's actually really small in the context of the cosmos, the smallest object that scientists have ever orbited. The asteroid is called Bennu, and it's been around since the beginning of the solar system. But this is a love story. A long, slow-burn romance. First, OSIRIS-REx had to travel across the solar system for two years just to reach its asteroid. Now the spacecraft will spend the next two years just getting to know Bennu. Taking pictures of it, surveying it, learning what it can about the object of its interest. Then, once the spacecraft knows as much as it can, it will swoop close, reach out an arm, and give the asteroid something like a kiss, just to take one little sample off its surface. But the tragedy of this love story is, that's it. Just one kiss, and then OSIRIS-REx will have to turn around and begin its long, lonely journey back to Earth. But that little sample could tell us a lot about the beginnings of our existence. Bennu is a carbonaceous asteroid, this piece of debris left over from the process that formed the solar system 4.6 billion years ago. So it's sort of like a time capsule that might just be full of secrets about where we came from and what we're made of. We won't know exactly what secrets, for a few years, OSIRIS-REx will return to Earth in September 2023. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. And if you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.